Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this awesome interview with Dennis Houghton, owner and operator of Houghton Horns, I would like to take a second and thank Houghton Horns for their sponsorship of this podcast. (laughs) For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. One of the things that I personally can often neglect in my life as a trumpet player is repairs and maintenance. At Houghton Horns, they do their repair work in-house, so you know you're getting one of their skilled craftsmen to do the work to bring your instrument back to 100%. They also do customizations, so if you were looking to customize your instrument for your specific needs, look no further than Houghton Horns. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. So whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I have with me here owner and operator of Houghton Horns, Dennis Houghton. Uh, If that name sounds familiar to you at all, it's because you would have heard uh, me talking about it in the pre-roll for the episodes as they are uh, sponsoring the podcast. And uh, I'm super thankful for that opportunity. And so I'm interested in getting to know the people uh, little by little who are um, so supportive of the show. And so first of all, uh, Dennis, I would like to say, A, thank you so much for sponsoring the podcast. I appreciate it. And B, thank you so much for giving me your time. You're welcome. Good to be with you today. So like most interviews, we'll just get started with kind of where you got involved with music, how you progressed, what things you feel are relevant to kind of give us a bit of a picture of who you are, where you came from, those kinds of things. I'll just turn it over to you and we'll go where we go. Sure, I can talk a little about that. Um, I remember listening to actually the horn and, and, and recognizing the horn sound as early as maybe fourth grade. I had a pretty good um, elementary music teacher, but really no other... Um, formal music education. Um, but in um, ninth, eighth and ninth grade, I, I was going to Hollywood Bowl concerts with my family, listened to the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra, um, Tchaikovsky 4, 1812, uh, Rachmaninoff concertos and symphonies. And I just really was drawn to the sound of the horn. Um, that led to starting band uh, late in, as a California um, band student I started in 10th grade which is about four years behind most players um, but I just had to play that instrument um, that led to um, playing through high school met met my best friend and horn pal Karen Swarthout um, and uh, had a lot of adventures with her playing in different um, uh, school bands but also in regional and um, um, community orchestras, and then uh, an undergraduate work at Cal State Long Beach. Um, the 
again, as a late starter, um, I had some catching up to do. I, I had pretty good range on the horn. I think I had a good characteristic sound, but um, learning a lot of different scales and, and some of the literature, I probably was behind the curve as I started college, but I think it just fueled my desire to, to work even harder. Um, California uh, band programs aren't the same as Texas, and I found that out after we arrived here in Texas in the early 80s. Um, I had um, started a small studio uh, teaching in some of the local public schools, and um, some of those eighth graders could play their scales better than I could. <laughs> that was eye-opening. Um, there's just great public band uh, school programs here in Texas, and some of that goes back to um, Czech and German immigrants that came here in the late 1800s, started their local community um, bands, and grew into public school programs. Um, and then the Texas Bandmasters Association started back in the early 1900s organizing um, contests and events, um, programs, and, and competitions that really fostered um, school music and great brass playing and, and really great wind band playing all over the state. Um, probably backtrack a little bit. My, um, my best horn pal, Karen Swarthout, became my wife um, in 79. And we um, freelanced a little bit around uh, Los Angeles area. Um, we also taught public school together at a at like a Head Start program for a, a underprivileged elementary school in Los Angeles Unified School District. Um, my first job was teaching second and fourth graders to teach uh, to to play violin and viola. But um, Karen had also um, managed to get some work, got a, a second horn position in the Long Beach Symphony. Um, we did a little bit of freelance work, but our, our teacher, uh, Jim Decker, uh, encouraged us to apply for positions outside of the country in Mexico and Venezuela. And we ended up taking a, a dual position in Cali, Colombia, in, starting in 19, early 1982. Uh, moved down there together with our one-year-old son, Mark Houghton, and we played in that orchestra for almost a year. Um, we shared principal horn uh, position and anything Karen had already played the rep, then I played first, and and vice versa. Um, it was not the same as, as American standards with the music making, but uh, it was a great experience because we played Beethoven and Schubert symphonies, uh, early Beethoven for a smaller um, chamber size orchestra, but then um, even played large works as well and got a lot of experience doing the solo part and holding down the holding down the horn section. Um, there were some Colombian players. Uh, there were also a lot of other expats from other countries. Um, one of our section mates was a Belgian horn player. And that was my ex first experience hearing a, a, a French style of playing that didn't match our American training at all. And still, we, we blended into a section and, and made it work. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question or... Yeah, it's just some of your history, yeah. Um, about that same time, we, that was um, late 1982, I had 
applied, and Karen and I both had applied for um, a Rotary Foundation scholarship to study in Germany. And I won one of the positions, and um, we started preparing to move from South America to Germany and studied at the the Northwest Hochschule for, for Music in Detmold, Germany. Um, again, our um, at this time, our two-and-a-half-year-old son came along with us. That was Mark. And there are um, times we were in brass uh, brass performance rehearsals playing loud Bruckner excerpts, and the Mark was in the audience playing with his little cars, and he'd say, oh, that's too loud. <laughs> actually stopped the group and asked, him, asked us to play it again, pianissimo, <laughs> the little boy happy. Um, so, I mean, Mark Mark's training goes back... He's heard the horn since he was in the womb. Mm. Um, but I mean, for for us, this was, was a dream come true to study in Germany and hear the horn and it's where the birthplace of the instrument happened. Um, a lot of great experiences there. Um, we also had the opportunity to play with the local uh, uh, opera orchestra, uh, the Landestheater Detmold. And um, again, I played uh, offstage and in the pit with the orchestra uh, on uh, Flying Dutchman, uh, some other productions, and uh, a bit of Parsifal. Um, so again, to, to and, and by U.S. standards, it's not the Metropolitan Opera, but it was a terrific experience. And these were German uh, chorus and German uh, musicians, German orchestral players, playing German music, playing Wagner. So um, it, it was the real deal. And then uh, my scholarship ran out, and we had, by that time, uh, our, our middle daughter, Rebecca, was born in Germany. And uh, we had to decide between um, staying in Germany, trying to scrape a living as, as uh, foreigners, and there had been times in the in the 70s when American players were did successful getting jobs in Germany, but there had been kind of a, a change in the culture, and they they were wanting to hire more European and German players. So we made the choice to come back to the U.S. Um, with our with our kids. And um, again, being from California, we knew about high rent prices, and um, there was so much. Um, uh, there's a lot of studio recording in LA, but um, we felt like we had better odds and there was opportunities in Texas. So at that time, it was probably early 1980, I guess late 83, we moved to uh, originally Wichita Falls, Texas, because we had some contacts there uh, and found that there's not enough musically going on in Wichita Falls to support two French horn players. Um, we did start a small studio. I worked at a at the municipal airport, um, but within a year, I had applied to UNT to start doing master's work with uh, Bill Scharnberg, who was newly in that position. And um, we we moved down um, to Fort Worth area in um, eighty, I guess late eighty four. Um, so my first. My college years, my first five years, um, had some really cool experiences. Um, then I was with, had a family and kids to support. Um, what I found out, though, in in Texas and specific, specifically in the Dallas area, 
you can make a living as a as a private music tutor. And they have the band programs programs structured so that you can go into the school during band period, teach two to three lessons, depending on how long the period is, then maybe get catch another period um, uh, and, and following period, maybe get in your car, drive to another campus and do the same thing. So I was able to teach in the first couple of years, uh, 45 or 50 students a week. And uh, within a couple of years, I had uh, gone up to 65 or 70 students a week. Uh, and once you prove to the band directors in the, in the, in the district or in the area you're, you're teaching, um, that you're going to be reliable, you're going to show up, you're going to challenge the kids and, and, and help them improve. Um, it, it gets within a couple of years, you can get so many students, you can't juggle them all. Yeah. Um, but on average, um, for 20 years between 85 and 95 or 85 and 2005, I taught, um, 65 students a week. And there were times I taught over 80 and um, still, the, uh, raising a family, paying the mortgage, two car payments, um, I was trying to find other work. We'd do gigs and play with local church orchestras and um, whatever professional playing we could get. And um, the summer comes along, and you've, you've got a, a load of students that drop off at the end of May. And what I had to figure out was how to support my family from June through August. And um, fortunately, that just in that first year, a local director asked if I could clean a few of his French horns. And I did know enough to pull my rotors out, take my horn apart, clean it, lubricate it, and get it back together. So I said, sure. Um, what I found out, it was, it was enjoyable for me. Um, I didn't have formal training, but I had tinkered enough with my own horn. Um, and I then I found out what the uh, local music stores charged to do the same work. And uh, I figured I might be able to make some money doing this. Um, following year, I, I went back to my, my horn studio, uh, taught through the school year, but by um, Mid-April, I was contacting band directors and asking if I could do some, if I could do cleanings on their French horns. Um, the first couple of years, it was pretty much straightforward cleaning and general maintenance, but um, I was also learning um, basic soldering, dent removal, all the other things you have to know as a repairman. And um, by the time I'd done it for three or four years, I was I was getting pretty good and. I had kind of a knack for, for dent removal. Um, at about that time, again, because I had a family to support, I asked one of the local music stores if they'd be interested in in having me, and they weren't. They were actually kind of snooty about it. <laughs> um, so I decided if I'm going to support my family, I'm going to do it, and, and I'm going to out uh, out repair the, the professional music stores. It just kind of pissed me off, I guess. <laughs> Um, but I, I got to say my business, the, the core of my business, the seed grew uh, from the private studio that I had in, the, in local school districts. And I could be in a band hall teaching um, um, four or five kids. I'd stick my head in the band office and ask, do you have any, any horns or euphoniums I could work on? And occasionally, you know, a few times a week, I'd get another instrument to repair get it back to them the following week uh, and gradually 
got a little bit of side income even during the school year. But with Texas, it's mostly they send it back in the day, they send in large batches of repair at the end of the school year. So in by late May, you're, you're going into a band hall and you might bid on repairing um, 40 or 60 instruments, um, 20 horns, 20 euphoniums, tubas and trombones. So um, pretty quickly when you start doing that, you get a lot of experience. Um, and I got to say, it wasn't all intuitive and I didn't know everything when I started. Uh, but there were a lot of long nights when I was up very late or doing all-nighters to, to get the work done and get it back as promised. Many times I charged less than, most of the time, I charged less than the local music stores, but that was so I could get the work. And I had a setup in my garage at the house to do it, but I didn't have the overhead that that a lot of you know, other commercial businesses had. Um, did that for a long time, and I was in a lot of different band halls, met a lot of different music educators, uh, a lot of great teachers, uh, and a lot of great students. But um, after doing it for 20 years and, and working 70, 80 hours a week, I decided um, that I didn't need to teach all the time. <laughs> so in about 2004, I um, started transition to uh, straight repair. And I had an assistant that I had trained. Um, he's one of my son's um, uh, best friends through high school. And, and Chris has just a knack for um, um, analytically thinking and, and figuring out uh, repairs. And he's a natural um, repair technician for rebuilding valves. He's probably the best uh, valve restoration guy uh, for rotary valves in the country. And that's Chris Reddick. Um, started training with him, and um, by 2005, I was full-time um, going into schools uh, during the school year and coming out with batches of work, um, sometimes just one or two horns per campus, but sometimes more, um, and making a living that way instead of trying to teach all day and then repair all night. Yeah, uh, it, it was tough, and since I didn't have connections to a – formal music store, I, I just had to do it differently. And it, it was like um, just hard work and hustle that, that, that got the business off the ground. So after working with Chris for a while, I um, was we started getting um, not just school repairs, but an occasional Fort Worth Symphony player or Dallas Symphony player uh, for cleaning or maybe a mouth pipe installation or other custom work. Um, and gradually transitioned. So we were doing work for university players and university teachers and other freelance and professional players. Um, but still, the, I mean, probably 50% of the work we do still is local school band stuff. So we have that connection from the beginner level all the way through the top professional players. That is, there's a lot, I feel like for me, to dig into and that that's an awesome just I appreciate all of the depth because like I said there's a number of different angles to take it into so I think we should start with one thing that's on my mind because I'm doing this body mind spirit workshop that I was talking to you about and a lot of 
struggle that people can have is trying to decide, well, do I want to be a performer? Do I want to be a teacher? Or do I want to do this? Or I don't want to do that. And you sort of have these, these conversations with yourself and where should it go? And during your whole story, you, it doesn't seem like you were having the, I mean, maybe you did. Um, there were freelancers in the area and I felt like I could play as well as those guys. But um, there was one point um, that I realized and I was playing in Nebraska Quintet and I'd drive 30 minutes up to Denton to do a rehearsal once a week. And then maybe we'd get a gig once a month. And I started calculating the drive time and the rehearsal time that I'm not getting paid for, make $100 a gig. I make more if I just stay at home and at the repair bench. So, and, and yet half of me once wanted to be a player. Um, and the cool thing is because of the teaching connections, because we have developed relations with um, um, local like um, church music ministers and things like that, we did get, we had uh, annual gigs and standard things that we played at a high level. Um, Karen and I both also played in the Wichita Falls Symphony, um, actually for over 25 years now. Um, and that's a good regional orchestra, mostly uses Dallas area players. Um, the core of the orchestra is Dallas opera players. Um, but we played um, major symphonic works uh, for about 10 years. I was principal. And then I stepped down to fourth horn so I could, again, focus on my business more. And um, Bill Scharnberg, who's my first teacher here in Texas, uh, is the principal horn in that orchestra still. So I don't mind playing uh, a lower chair to Bill because he's such a great player. Yeah, I think it's just super cool that you're like reflecting upon what you talked about towards the beginning of your career when you were kind of going all over the world and performing that this was just a thing you were doing. You're performing. And then when you moved back, it seemed like to be able to, when you came to Texas, like teaching was obviously a thing you could go into to be able to make money while you maybe were going to, and then obviously teaching became a huge part of what you did. I just, I, I like that it was sort of a big part of it, I'm sure was just the thing that was right in front of you. You know what I mean? It wasn't necessarily like, I'm going to make this big choice. It was like, well, clearly teaching is something I should invest myself in. And, and it led to the stuff with the shop. I think it's kind of cool how it all sort of panned out in terms of like the windy road, so to speak. Yeah. And, and the windy road was, I mean, they say it's the journey and that was definitely part of it. I got to say, I didn't say it earlier. I loved teaching. I really enjoyed uh, it's one-on-one -on -one as a, as a horn tutor, as a private teacher here in Texas. And so you pull the kids into a practice room and I got to share my passion for music and the horn uh, with these sixth graders or, or 10th graders or uh, many of whom end up being music majors. Um, and I had a lot of um, dregs, <laughs> kids that maybe didn't have a lot of talent, but they I think all of my students, and it, it was hundreds over the years, even now I hope they, they still have an appreciation for the horn and I'm sure they recognize it when they hear it in, in a movie or, or on TV. Um, so again, it's uh, I, I was building up kids and and promoting music and the horn. I I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and I think you're what you're describing. I think is a really beautiful example of that. An instrument and in music in our life 
should first and foremost, I think, fulfill our lives, you know, be this thing that enriches it and not necessarily is the thing that drives us to be stressed all the time because we're trying to figure out how, which is part of it when you're a professional musician, but just having an appreciation, I think, can still be a, a way that people interact with music. And it's like an okay thing if they just love it, but they don't necessarily do it. And, and um, Amen, I guess. <laughs> Uh, but and I know you're going to ask about the business side, and uh, my wife will tell you, my son will tell you, and my business partners. <laughs> I don't really enjoy the business side of it, um, but it's it's necessary. Um, what I do day to day still is, I'd rather be at the workbench um, improving a horn, uh, repairing a horn, than I don't want to sit in front of spreadsheets or map out marketing strategies. But um, the, the team that we've got, that we've been able to build here um, is pretty good at that. Um, Derek Wright is one of our owners and business partners, and he's uh, got a, a doctorate in horn performance, but he's uh, very good with the computer stuff, uh, the website building. He has dug in deep into um, um, the, the business world figure out how to run a business and how to make it profitable. Um, so we're, um, our success is because of our team. Um, even though I'd like to take credit for it all, that's not really the case. Well, I would agree with you. I, I think sometimes I ask myself the question, what brings me joy or what makes me happy? And I think about the work that I'm doing with my clients and my students and stuff and all of that stuff brings me joy. But I, the business side of things, like you said, just brings me very little joy to keep track of every little dollar and cent because it matters and all those kinds of things. I would totally agree. And I think it's something that maybe, whether it's freelancers or people who start their own business, it's maybe not something you're immediately thinking about as a reality of what you're going to have to deal with. So what was it like for you when you didn't have a team having to sort of manage learning about those kinds of things before you had other people who could support you, it, but poorly, and uh, <laughs> usually the the well the tax filings or the accounting, the bookkeeping stuff was the last thing I did at night. And many times I go to bed exhausted and wake up at three in the morning because I was fearful about well I, did I file the IRS taxes right? Um, so I'm kind of I, probably is obvious I'm a do-it-yourselfer. And I have learned to get, if you get the right help, it might might cost you something, but actually it's it's saving me money in the long run to have a good accountant and to, to uh, get good advice. Yeah, I think we should go down this road a little bit more. Uh, what other things do you feel like you've learned that are, you're like, man, I wish I kind of would have known that when I first started? Um... Now you're gonna make me go deep. <clears throat> um, <laughs> I I want to be liked by people. So um, many times, and when I was still learning, and I I mean I still learn things about brass repair and and brass techniques uh, even today. But um, from the beginning, I didn't charge much for my services, and then even when I got um, some pretty uh, pretty good skills and could do things at a high level. I didn't charge enough, and my wife will 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 uh, tell you about that because it it never was quite enough to pay the bills the way she wanted to. 
<laughs> but again, here I was doing something I loved, um, and I thought it was cool because it was related to music and the horn. Um, but I, I think I, probably I allowed people to take advantage of me, um, having bringing on Chris Reddick um, as a as an assistant and a, and a partner uh, in the repair shop. Pretty quickly, he was saying, "Well, you should have a minimum price for this service, and if we." do a, bal- a valve rebuild or we do a bell conversion um, mouthpipe installation, there should be a set charge. And um, sometimes those those services take longer and there's things that come up and you don't make great money, but we've managed to set the charges where, and they may still be lower than, than many music stores, but uh, we've got them set where they'll typically be profitable unless we run into some other problem. Uh, just having that like a standard rate that's profitable and consistent has been one key. And it's something I didn't want to do at first because I was always trying to undercut the, the competition to guarantee I'd get the work. Uh, as far as mistakes you can make <laughs> in business, I've made them all. And that's, unfortunately, that's the best way to learn. Yeah, I would say... When you're deciding what to, like for me, setting a price for the services that I provide, which would be lessons or coaching or whatever, right? Uh, you, I, I'm oftentimes trying to decide what do I think someone will pay rather than like what is my time worth or what do I feel like I would, you know, how would I use my time if it wasn't used for this? And so I think fear of, you know, people not paying something and this won't be a sustainable thing. So what has your experience, what have you seen when you started setting these prices for a minimum amount of work? Did you see any drop off in people not wanting to do it or have people saying, this is too much money now, I can't do this? Or did you see people just say, cool, that's fine? Most of the time, it's that reaction. They're fine Mm. with it. Um, it, Some of it is, is also a reputation that we've built over 30 years of doing this stuff. Um, but it's that fear is that they're, they're, this is going to be too expensive. They'll say no. Um, so I, I guess you just have to put it out there. And I always, um, again, I, I, for years, I would, I would teach uh, a 12-hour day. I'd get home at night, get some dinner. Uh, and then i go out to my repair shop and work for another two or three hours. So I didn't. I probably didn't value my own time as much as mm-hmm. it should have been. Um, but I, I was providing for my family. Um, I was providing a service to the community, and it, it worked out. Um, it, I probably would say, if you're in music to make it rich, you're probably in the wrong business. <laughs> <laughs> so again, I, I had that enjoyment of, of, of the task itself. Uh, and just doing things to a high level um, is its own reward. You talked about doing the teaching and and then the late night repair stuff. You you said twenty years. Did I hear that correctly? In that neighborhood of time. Yeah. So, twenty years is a long time to be doing it. What was the thing that made you feel that it was no longer sustainable? Did you just get tired of doing it, or was there something else that happened that made you think there needed to be a change? Well, when um, my kids um, had 
Mark is my son and, and two daughters that are uh, about three years younger each. Um, Mark started band in, in fifth grade and or maybe it was sixth, but not only was I doing something I enjoyed, but my kids went through the local band programs. And many times I was teaching in the Keller High School band hall with my kids in there uh, and their peers and their friends. So I taught um, not only um, great music students, but I taught my own kids. And to, to be involved in a, in a great band program with great people and have, a, have an influence and be there with my kids, um, that was really rewarding. And I guess it was 2003 when my youngest daughter uh, graduated, suddenly it wasn't as fun. <laughs> um, and I'd, I'd been through all that. The, the local Keller band where my kids went, um, went to state marching contest in 2001. And it was like, a, you know, a, a, um, a mountaintop experience. And then it's hard to match. It's hard to match that. Um, so it's, and, and, but still another foundation for our business today is those relationships with school band directors, educators all over the state. Um, they buy some of our new horns. We, we do repairs for their programs. They look to us for, for great products. And now with the social media stuff on, on our YouTube channel, there's Houghton Horns educational services, um, so we're continuing to build and reinforce that foundation um, with the school band, the, the market, but also, the, the, again, these people are our friends. Yeah, that's it's like about or about relationships and it just takes... This is one of my things about business that I've, I've learned that I, I'm glad I know, but it's kind of frustrating, is like for something to become sustainable, it just will take time. Like you can't really, I, I think sometimes you want to fast track yourself. You see something that somebody else has and you go, I'll just figure out all the right answers and fast track myself to this place where this thing I want to do is sustainable. But like you're talking about, the sustainability comes in the relationships and the trust that you've that you've built. Yeah. So one thing that's really cool to me about the story you told is that as you described, the 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 horn business, the repair business, uh, was built out of the relationships you have built in the schools, and then sort of that with the students, the switching full time into that. Obviously, it's grown since then because you're in a in an actual shop now, not in your garage. And so, what was, I mean, getting a team, I'm sure, was helpful. But what kind of growth did you see that you were like, this is a clear, we should go this direction? And what kind of growth did you see that you were like, I never would have seen this happening? It's kind of crazy. Was, uh, it was a bit of um, two things. We we had by um, 2015 we had um, been um, gotten dealerships for Engelbert Schmidt and some other uh, a number of other um, horn makers from around the world. Uh, we were Yamaha dealers. We were Conselmer dealers. Um, my wife was teaching horn lessons out of the home, and I had my repair shop in the house. And a couple of employees coming. So <laughs> there were times when there'd be six, seven cars on the street that weren't mine. And the neighbors finally got had enough of it and made a formal complaint. So we got a, a, a registered letter from the city that we were violating some uh, municipal code for running a business in the home. And I've had employees coming and, and actually 
we had done it for years. I just didn't recognize how much impact it was having on my neighbors. So we had to move. And um, we we found this building uh, in the first month, but felt like it was too expensive. Um, eventually, we, we worked out the things. Uh, we we uh, are buying the building or we own it. And um, it's been a great uh, commercial um, commercial location. We've got room in here for the repair shop, but also the horns you see on the wall here is um, those are just overflow. There's an entire other showroom for horns. We've got a showroom for trombones and trumpets in the other room. Um, we've got a, a lobby area, offices, and um, a repair shop. We even got our own executive washroom. <laughs> it's big time now. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose one direction I was interested in trying to take that question is like, one of the things that I know about you is that you're an exclusive dealer of Tyne. And for like trumpets, I know that's like, uh, like a, you know, a very high end trumpet maker. I'm sure it's the same for other instrument types as well. And it's just like, would you have seen that if you would have told yourself X amount of t however many years ago when you started that, like that was a possibility, would you have been like, yeah, I could see that. Or would you've been like, oh, that's not possible. Um, I think it goes back to our history of when, when we got to meet Max um, and he actually showed up here again, goes to the relationships. Um, um, trying to think of Zach's last name. Um, Zach Bond was at Capel High School, and uh, I, I had taught at Capel High School. Mark had played with Zach in the Dallas Youth Orchestra. Um, Zach is is uh, as a Thai artist that in um, I think he's in Taiwan, but um, Zach is also and his family are friends of ours. Max visited here a couple of years ago, right before the TMEA show saw the shop, saw our, our, our repair facilities, saw what we do. He was looking for a, more of a presence here in the country. Um, we have been successful selling um, Bach and um, um, Shire's products. And, and then there was also the German connection. So I felt comfortable speaking with Max. I, I speak a little German still. His English is actually quite good, but um, it just felt like a good fit. Um, there may be shops on the East Coast that might be might sell more of these products because of location near near major metropolitan areas, but uh, we've been successful so far um, introducing and and I think the the time uh, exposure will, will only grow. His instruments, whether it's a trombone or or piccolo rotary piccolo. Um, they're exquisitely crafted. They're they're, um, and I've seen a lot of work from a lot of German shops. But um, the tying instruments, the thought, the care that goes into them, it's it's obvious from looking at the instrument. But then you play them, and they play uh, acoustically equally uh, at the same level as as the um, the as their appearance. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to make like a leap here after listening to you speak for a little bit. It sounds like you were actually not super concerned with like where things would head. It just seemed like you took the opportunities that came from the relationships you had built and that's sort of what growth and expansion has looked like for your business. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, there some of it was just um, <laughs> we've been through three or four different recessions <laughs> over 30 years, and I've seen the economy go up and down, even in Texas. Um, but we kind of stick to the same course that we've been on, and we try to provide good quality and take care of our customers. Uh, even when that means I have to stay up late or work extra hours to get something done. Um, and it's worked. It's, it's worked for us. Uh, it's not always been easy. But again, it's um, that thing about it's, it, if it's always easy, is it actually worthwhile? Sure. I think one of my struggles is, it's encouraging to hear that because one of my struggles I feel is is feeling like I have to figure it out, right? I have to like, well, what's the next step? Where am I going? What am I going to do? And it's encouraging to hear that just building relationships and staying the course and doing it consistently is a pretty good business model. I think so. I think there's some some really smart folks out there that can, like you said, um, make some shortcuts and figure out ways around things. Um, but for me, it was just dogged perseverance. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, this is going to be a hypothetical. It's going to kind of fly in the face of what I just asked, but if like money were no object and you could do whatever you want, what it, what would growth, what do you feel like growth would look like if you could invest in any area in any way you'd want? Like, what do you think that would look like? There's one thing that we're, that bothers us. We've been successful as horn dealers. We sell tubas and trombones. We're successful um, selling those. But some reason the trumpet market for us is um, it's partly because every other music store in the area can also be a Bach dealer and they can sell Yamaha Zenos. Um, and there's not that much profit margin in trumpets. But we've worked with the, the Fort Worth Symphony sections. I've worked with Dallas Symphony uh, trumpet guys since Rick John Giglio in the mid nineties. Um, and, and um, I think we're the best qualified uh, shop to work on and sell trumpets in Texas. We're just not recognized as that because mm. you can get them cheaper other places. Um, and we sell them at the same price that, that they're supposed to. But um, even when we moved to this shop, my house is a mile and a half away. When we moved here, there were people in Keller at, going to the local schools that didn't know about Houghton Horns. So sometimes it was just kind of inside deal deal because the band directors knew me, but maybe not all the students or the incoming uh, families um, knew about Houghton Horns. So mm. kind of annoying. It's a challenge. Uh, we're getting better at our message and and uh, involving the community and also um, the entire internet. Uh, but it's something we have to work at. And again, we've got a great team, and we we're now we're doing putting together content, educational, um, uh, musical, and um, even repair content, and trying to post it every week. Yeah. As a music major, I wasn't trained in business. I wasn't trained in social media, or um, but but again, it's it's where we have had success is just be a good person and care about your customers and. Somehow that turns out to be successful. <laughs> Somehow, right? I it's yeah, it's just uh, that's a great for me a great response. I mean, not just from the trumpet perspective, but just saying like acknowledging what is going well and then trying to sort of dig into well. There's also growth left. I think 
just approaching that in any aspect in any part of our life at all, like acknowledging the good and then trying to do something about what we wish could be just a little bit better. Um, I feel like you could apply that pretty much anywhere. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think one of the things, I mean, your educational stuff, we could talk about that. I would actually really enjoy talking about that for a second because that's what actually, that's how I learned about you. But you know, four or five years ago, just browsing through YouTube, you know, I found those, the TMEA videos that were produced and, uh, you know, it had thousands and thousands of views and I, I didn't, I had no idea what Houghton Horns was. I just know, knew it was a YouTube channel. <laughs> well, so I'd it, love to give credit for that, but it, that was, um, Karen and I were out of the country. We were doing, uh, we did a music festival in, um, in Austria we were gone for two and a half weeks and I came back and Mark and Derek had done those first videos and they were not the production values that we have now, but they were pretty damn good. And I was super impressed and proud. Uh, so that was the start of it. And I had nothing to do with it. Well, and I know too, your wife, if I'm not incorrect, has written sort of a intro to horn, like sort of cooking themed book. If I'm not incorrect, Mark was saying something like that. What was the inspiration behind that? Um, 30 years of teaching experience and then friends and, and some of our director friends and, and other music educators kept bugging her. You've got to write a book. You've got to put this down. Karen's had um, just dozens and dozens of all-state players, some of the top players in the state every year for years and years. Um, so she has really sound fun, uh, fundamentals and a good um, um, I can't think of the word <laughs> but she's she's got she's great at training young players and even uh, high school players playing at a high level um, some of her players her, her college students come back and study with her in the summer when they're not at Colorado or Miami or or uh, Texas A&M Sorry, Texas, UT, excuse me. One of the things that is really impressive to me is like we're talking about this education part and I was going to ask, why is education so important for you guys? But after talking to you for, you know, 45 minutes, it's pretty clear that you've been doing it for the last like 30 years and it's just part of, it seems like a part of you. So naturally it would seem to seep into the way you do business as well. I have... Um... Um, even now, we have a, um, a, a college intern. Uh, he's in the TCU Horn Studio. He comes in several times a week helping in the repair shop, and he's get, he gets paid. Um, but um, I got to talk with him a little bit yesterday, and he had a, a car repair he had to do. Uh, and it was pretty expensive. And I, I was telling him, you know, what you see at Houghton Horns now there was times 25 years ago, I was out repairing my car at midnight because I couldn't afford to pay somebody to do it. So uh, we've grown a lot. I, I do really enjoy encouraging uh, young people, whether it's high school or, or college level. Um, and, and we didn't uh, instantly become a major horn dealer. It was um, what you see is a result of a lot of years of hard work. And, and, and striving and, and passion because this doesn't pay enough <laughs> to, to bother with it if you didn't just have to do it. So what do you feel, 
are, is this something you feel like you're going to do until you literally can't do it anymore? Or do you see your, I mean, you've put so many hours. Until I drop. I was going to ask yeah, if you had any plans of like where you could stop. I, I, I will tell you some of the more uh, most enjoyable things for me in the last couple of years. Um, um, it was almost exactly two years ago. I flew to Germany and met with a friend of mine um, near Mainz. And we drove from, and he, he was a retired um, a Scottish horn player that worked in Germany for 30 years. He's retired, uh, still lives in a, a little town in Germany. And, and he enjoys um, making horns and, and making parts. And he's uh, actually developed two or three designs that are his own designs. Um, and we drove uh, over a week, we drove and visited about five different horn shops and uh, factories that made just bells. Um, we visited the Meinl Schmidt valve shop in near, uh, near Munich. And then the Avald Meinl bell shop in the same town or near the same town that's um, been hand making brass instrument bells for the last 50 years. Um, then we drove up north to Markner-Kirchen where they make, um, it's actually the seat of German um, instrument making. Um, they started making violins 400 years ago, then uh, woodwind instruments and brass instruments 250 years ago. And it was a kind of a cottage industry. There'd be a house on one street that only made valves and another house that only made um slide crooks and, and bent tubing and another shop where they would assemble it all together. Um, that's where the, um, um, the Hoyer and the buffet factory is now in Mark and Kirchen. Um, and I've visited that town uh, four different times now and spent, uh, spent um, several days there and visiting with the, the makers and the people that really know brass. And for me, that's, it's like being in a toy store. It's so enjoyable and I learn every time I go. And um, I took a, a Carl Geyer horn there um, on that visit and um, have visited a small shop where um, uh, the Frank Dreyer valve shop, it was on a hill uh, out of downtown by a couple miles. And it turns out his neighbor had heard that I had come to the shop with a Geyer instrument and he remembered stories about Carl Geyer from 90 years ago when Geyer um, uh, actually grew up in the area. So those connections and, and, and the, the passion for this craft that we have, um, there are still people around the country. And, and for me, that was just a, a great shot in the arm to hear that they knew about him and they still cared about him, even though he's been gone probably now for 30 years. So um, for, for me, that trip, just, just to take that time, and I didn't have to be at the workbench, but it's still something involving brass and, and, and working with your hands and, and making music. And one where you can just like, like almost like continue like learning, you know, like the doing of something is one thing, but when you have a chance to step away and just come at it with a fresh perspective, I'm sure you came back to it with a whole new like a sort of fire maybe. Oh yeah. 
That's awesome. I mean, I, I, I do this six or seven days a week. Sometimes I do just take a day off, but most of the time I'm happy just being at the workbench. Uh, I get annoyed when the phone rings because it means I don't get, I'm not working on brass, uh, but that's also a, a, a necessary part of doing business. Yeah. I kind of have an idea. This is towards the end of the questions I have, uh, so we'll see where it goes. I, I kind of have an idea of what the answer to this might be, but I'm curious. It seems like it could be a fun question to ask you of what you feel like if you have an idea or can come up with an answer of what you would would want your legacy to be through this business or through your teaching. If you have any idea of like how you would answer that, I would be very curious. Um. Like a headstone inscription. <laughs> Something along those lines. Just what, what you hope that you, all the work that you've done when it's, you know, the way people talk about you the same way you were talking about, you know, people are talking about this person 30 years later, this kind of idea. Um, I just want people to know that I, I, I did what I could to um, advance brass playing. Um, we don't just work on French horns, uh, although that is the primary thing we do. Um, my best friend is a tuba player. Um, I, I love that instrument. It's in our conical bore family. Uh, it's, it's about resonance. So it's, um, I think I, I'm just passionate about um, playing and music and the history. When I play Schumann, I've been fortunate because I've been in the town where in, in, um, in Cologne where he wrote the, the Rennes Symphony about the, the towers from the Cologne Cathedral. It's like what I do here at the workbench and working with a music student ties me to Schumann and uh, German history from 200 years ago and all the great music history. Um, I'm a friend of Tchaikovsky. I'm a friend of Bach, I'm a friend of Mozart because of what I do. So, um, certainly not unique, but to me, that's so special to be involved with something that ties back into history three or 400 years. I love the, with the reverence that you have for your craft and for uh, the music in general, where have you always been this way or do you feel like you developed it as you developed more of your craft? I'm probably a bit more articulate about it now but I, I i have these thoughts because when you're buffing a horn for hours and hours you have time to think <laughs> <laughs> oh that makes sense yeah i think it's you know to hear somebody who has such reverence and such love for what they do for me is it's just it's inspiring i i dig it you know it's always nice to whatever it is whatever their that person's thing is it's really nice to hear um and just like you can hear it in the voice like that trip, the way you talked about that trip, you could just hear it, that it was like, it meant a lot to you just in the way you spoke about it. So um, as opposed to wrap everything up here, um, maybe as a way to get for us to get to know you slightly outside uh, of the horn uh, and the work that you do, I know it takes up probably a lot of your time, but help us get a picture into how you spend some of the rest of your time uh, outside of the, the work you do on the workbench. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> I, I, when we had to make the move from my home to here, it was a huge deal. 
we didn't have any guarantees it would work. It was my life savings and life's work, and it could have flopped. Uh, fortunately, the economy wasn't going on like like it is now, and we the business actually grew um, in the first couple of months. We could see it's going to work. It's going we're going to be okay. Um, we spent a lot more money, but we also made a lot more money. Um, again, going back to the beginning, I did this to support my family and to find a way to stay involved in music and, and in brass playing. Um, but it's also nice that we can, uh, right now we have um, seven employees um, that we're providing living for. And somehow, during even during the pandemic, we're still keeping afloat. So that's rewarding in itself. Um, but again, I, maybe it's so um, rewarding because there is no guarantee that it was mm -hmm. going to work. It's an interesting perspective, yeah. Like you just have to dive all in and make that... Besides, I don't know how to do much else. And <laughs> I do enjoy um, um, fishing when I have time. I like to travel, um, but my hobby is brass playing and working with instruments and listening to music. So um, Karen's um, schedule has changed. She's not teaching as much during the day. She'll be teaching tonight from from 7 till 9.30. And usually if she's at the house teaching, I'm going to be here in the shop working because at least I'm doing something and, and moving forward and and preparing for the next repair or, or how to help the next customer. So I guess it's pretty lame, but my hobby right now is making sure that this business succeeds. I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that's a very fair hobby. Dennis, I really appreciate your time. This was, it was great for me just to get to know you in general, but also to get to know the people behind, uh, like I said, the sponsors, like, to introduce something like that and then to actually get to know the people instead of just the products that they're selling, I think is a really unique opportunity that I am able to share with my audience. And so I appreciate you sharing what you have and being willing to, like I said, just kind of just be open and, and talk about all these different things. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, really. Uh, I'm assuming HoutonHorns.com would be the best way to get a hold of you if someone was interested in sort of, you know, talking to you about anything. Absolutely. So check that out. I uh, That'll be in the show notes. You can check it out there. Um, if you need to get in touch with me, you can do so at thatsnotspit.com. Also, that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you need... I just interrupt you for a second? <laughs> yeah, sure. I told my, my students and, and their parents for years, that's not spit. But honestly, um, there is some saliva and some <laughs> particles in there. I'm going to have to rename my podcast now. I You would know better than I would. Bit of saliva and some, <laughs> some mouth slime. Well, like I said, maybe it's, it's a little bit saliva and some mouth slime. Maybe that'll be the new podcast title. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, so, yeah, but for now, I suppose it's that's not spit.com and that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you need to get, uh, I would appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Uh, and don't forget to share this on social media so other people can find it. Uh, I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And I want to thank you all for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.